Amen. Please be seated. You have on your outline the text that I will read once again this week. We are starting 2010, the new year and the new decade for that matter, by reacquainting ourselves with the tools that God has provided for our growth and grace. God has not left us to wander in this life aimlessly without guidance and power to progress. Instead, He's given us very clear tools, and we sometimes make it more complicated than it is, looking to all sorts of clever ways to grow or to get closer to God or any other way people would designate uh, maturing. When, in fact, we will find it most helpful to go back to those days just after Jesus ascends and the apostles are there teaching the people, the church is growing, and there's a level of purity, not to say that it's the only time the church has ever experienced this, or even that that was the highest time of the church's existence, but rather there is the lack of the various encumberments that creep in in this early time in the church's life, and it gives us a real clear picture of the tools that God used to grow the church, both in width and depth, in these early days. So with this, let's gain our direction again from Acts 2, 38 through 42. Please listen as I read God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, starting at Acts 2, 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this access we have to you through our high priest, the Lord Jesus, that you hear us even now as we pray in perfect, broken people, the people united to your son by faith, the gift you have given by your grace. And now, Father, we come to you asking that you would help us, that you would give us wisdom, that we would understand the teaching of your word, that we would understand how it informs us of every aspect of our living. Lord God, give us power to grow in Christ. Give us a constant dependence upon Him and His merit. And Father, I pray that You would encourage us this day as we recognize that we don't have to go through incantations or priests and sacrifices and all sorts of other uh, mediations. Lord, we have direct access to You, our Father, because of Christ. I pray, Father, that we would be compelled by your spirit to avail ourselves of this means of grace, prayer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life certainly isn't any kind of jog in the park or some uh, joyful, peaceful stroll. It's much more like climbing a mountain, and I've tried to submit that to you for these three sermons. The comparison I have made in particular is to Mount Everest the tallest mountain in the world, just over 29,000 feet. And you know, Everest has drawn adventurists for the last hundred years solid since it was first deemed climbable in 1885 by a man who wrote a book after getting to where the base camp now is at 17,700 feet. Well, it took 
almost 40 or 50 years after this man wrote the book before the first people did ascend to its summit. But since that time in 1953, almost 3,000 people have made it to the top. But that's out of over 10,000 people who have tried. You know, to climb any 14,000-foot mountain in our country, which is considered the big deal, it really only takes you six to eight hours to do so. Any one of them, if you start at the base, within six to eight hours, you'll summit, all things being equal. Everest takes two to three months from the travel to the acclimatizing to the training to the waiting for just the right moment. It has to be in May when the jet stream moves. The jet stream moves just north of the peak. That's how tall it is. There's a jet stream that goes over the top. I mean, commercial jetliners fly at 25,000 feet, let alone 30. And so only in May is there this window to climb it, and it, there's almost a race to the top when this window opens up. But it's a huge, monumental task to climb this mountain. And I want us to be under no illusion that the, the walk of faith, the walk that God has called you to, is a monumental task. And it takes a lot to get there. It takes a lot of tools to get up Everest. You can't, you hit, some are just, you might say, essential for any of us. You have to have the right footwear. You've got to have the right suit on. You have to have the right instrument, the axe. You have to have some oxygen once you get to to the 26,000 feet barrier and that last 3,000 feet up and 3,000 feet back. You know, we've been talking about summiting as though that's the goal, but the fact is, reality is, when a mountain expedition happens, not just a climb, an expedition happens, uh, they say that getting to the top is optional, but coming down is compulsory. And that's true. So you need that oxygen for the last 3,000 feet up and last 3,000 feet back to the 26,000 feet mark and then down to safety. Well, we need tools for our walk in this life as well, and God has given them to us. They're simple but very powerful. Uh, we learn that he has given us his word, and we see in Acts 2.42 that this is the foundation of the growth for the people of God. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the word of God, in the context of the fellowship of God's people, taught, learned, read, memorized, constantly heard, mulled over, this gives growth and grace for the people of God. It's like having the boots on that you need to climb that mountain. Uh, they give you a grip. They give you stability. They keep you when the wind blows from falling one side to the other. You stay firm. Likewise, he has given us the sacraments also. Unfortunately, demeaned in many evangelical churches, we forget that these are the means of grace that God has given us in addition to his word. Baptism, it's like putting on that snowsuit of identification that protects you, that gives you a certain level of security to belong. And they can see you way ahead in the expedition if by the color of your jacket, who you are and how you're progressing. It means something. It's important. It's a means of God's grace. But also, we are given that axe that's about three feet long. It's aluminum and strong, and it can hold your body weight if it sticks in the side of an icy wall and you're hanging there. It can stop you from a fall. It can help you progress through the, through the deep snow. Similarly, we have the Lord's Supper. On a regular basis, we partake of this means of grace that not only reminds us of what Jesus has done for us and our right standing before God because of it, but it gives us a special feeding spiritually that helps us with the gospel to go on each week. To move, to progress. Now we come to the final tool that God outlines for us in his word. They were breaking bread, they were baptized, and they were praying. We see this 
in Acts 2.42, we see this from the beginning of Scripture to the end. The people of God communicating directly with their God. And they can do so because they're in covenant with Him through the work of Christ. You know, what we're talking about here is known or otherwise called the means of grace. It's an important title. Think about what it means. The means, the way in which we understand God's grace. It's not simply by the preached word. It's these other means as well that God gives us. Prayer is one of the ways in which we come to know God's grace, experience God's grace in a greater way. But let's not forget what the means of grace are by way of review. If you look at your outline, I have question 88, which we recited earlier. This comes from our shorter catechism. And for those who are new, the catechism is uh, based on a confession of faith, a doctrinal statement that our church adheres to. We believe that it best describes what the Bible teaches. It's subservient to the Bible. We believe it's accurate according to the Bible, but we can always review it to see that it is. And that's what we do even when we teach and we talk about it. We ask ourselves, is this in line with Scripture? If it is, then we should pay attention to it. We believe the shorter catechism, which are a series of questions based on the confession to actually help children learn doctrine, uh, helps us in understanding what the Bible teaches in a succinct way. As it relates to these means of grace, this these tools for spiritual growth. Look at question 88. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? We've been redeemed. There's a benefit to redemption that is a sense of joy, a sense of security, uh, power to grow. These are all benefits of redemption. It's not just about being redeemed. It's about the life that is lived in light of redemption, sanctification. Well, the answer to that question is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicated to us the benefits of redemption otherwise said as the way you can grow spiritually, are his ordinances. Those things that he ordains to give us growth. Especially the word, sacraments, and prayer. This is where we have come. All of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation, to those who trust in him. The first tool was the word of God. The second is the sacraments, divided into two, of course, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now today, let's consider the third tool for spiritual growth, prayer. We see in the early church, just as the church in the Old Testament did, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In the Old Testament, was devoted themselves to the prophets' teaching. Apostles of the prophets of the New Testament, after Christ had come. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. This is in context of community. There's no monastic movement where people are off isolated on their own. It's intended that the Word of God be heard and applied in the context of fellowship with other people. The breaking of bread. An allusion to not just having dinner together, but communion together with God in prayers. Well, later in the New Testament, we're given a wonderful picture that I'd like us to begin with considering. It's Hebrews 4:15. Listen to what it says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So our high priest Jesus relates completely with us. Then it says in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then, with confidence, confidence in who? In Christ, because he's our high priest, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need. So we're bidded to come to the throne of grace through Christ, who purchased his way for us. We are compelled to pray. I want to say at the beginning, before we look at question 98 there listed for you, that there is... Much misunderstanding about prayer among Christians. Even people who have been believers for a long time. All too often people think that prayer 
is a way in which we get God to do things. Or in some way that God is waiting for the prayers of people in order to act. That God is somehow leveraged by, God, by man's prayer, his people's prayer. That's erroneous. That's not at all what the Bible teaches about prayer. Uh, further, in the late 80s, early 90s, there were a series of books that came out. One was called Piercing the Darkness, where the author purported the idea that uh, there was a demonic attack on a person, a certain town. And the success of the townspeople who are Christians uh, to defend against the demonic powers was dependent upon their prayers. When they prayed a lot, they had some victory. When they didn't pray, the demons would win. And I would submit to you that that's wholly unbiblical. That's not the view that the Bible gives us of what prayer is. God's will will be done. The issue is whether we're in line with it or not. And prayer is one of the means God gives to get us in line with God's will. And I think we all want to know what God's will is, so pray. And as you pray according to the word, and while partaking of sacraments and the whole, wearing all the tools, your prayers will become more in line with God's will. Sometimes you may pray for a long, 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 long time for something you think is God's will to discover it's not God's will. And that's the beauty of prayer. It teaches us what God's will is. It isn't in such cases. Prayer is about our spiritual growth, not about manipulating God to do what we think is right. Important for us to recognize this, the way the scriptures depicts prayer, rather than the way we have somehow conjured it up to be. Look at question 98. This is a shorter catechism does its best to explain the Bible's teaching on prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God, for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Now let's take this apart and consider it biblically, because it's solid. It's the best definition I've ever seen succinctly of prayer. The first phrase says, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. This mirrors exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 62. Trust in him at all times, David writes. O people, pour out your heart before God. God is a refuge for us. Pour out your desires to God. It's an offering up of our desires. Just say, say it honestly to the Lord what it is that you want, what it is that you want to see. And recognize that he understands where you are in the spiritual continuum of your growth. And he's not bothered by that. So nothing you could pray would be too immature for God to hear. Now, as you grow and get to learn his word, your prayers will start to change and they'll start, you'll start praying for things that are more in line with his word. But when you first start studying the scriptures and you start this walk of faith, you don't know everything that's in the word. So pray what you desire, recognizing that what we're looking for, those things agreeable to his will, which comes in time. Now, he don't worry because he won't answer a prayer that's not according to his will. So don't freak out going to God and say, maybe I'm not praying something biblical to God. Pour out your desires to God. That's what it says. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart before him. He's a refuge. Be honest. Be genuine. Straightforward. Unguarded. Go to God. He is your father. Jesus has purchased this access. You can do it. But notice the next phrase. We offer up our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. Our desire is to pray according to his will. That we wouldn't pray opposed to something he's clearly laid out in his word. So in time, as you grow and as you pray, you'll learn what is according to his word, more clearly. Now, there are many things that you don't have directly laid out for you in Scripture. You know, what school should I go to? What things should I purchase? What person should I have a relationship with? Or any of the things that you might uh, really want God to answer you really clearly. It's not going to always be there in the word like that. 
But there are so many things we do pray for that have principles in Scripture that clearly would direct us. And as we learn them, we'll pray. I don't want to say more intelligently, because I don't mean it's unintelligent to pray your desires when you don't know. But definitely with, uh, with more information, with a clear picture of God's character and what he would have us pray for. So, we offer up to God our desires for things agreeable to his will. John writes in the first letter that he writes after the gospel, he says, and this is confidence that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This is an important distinction between saying this, and sometimes people use it, prayer as a formula, that if you say it a certain way, God has to do what you say. Well, the fact is, it's when he hears something according to his will, he wants us to be in line with his will. In fact, really probably the greatest benefit of prayer is the process of coming more and more in line with his will and accepting his will. You know, Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Difficult to say exactly what it was. But he kept praying for God to remove it. God did not remove it. And it came to Paul's attention later in his life as he continued to ask for this thing to be removed, whether it be a physical ailment or a person who was assailing him or, or some remorse from his past, whatever it was, for some reason, God had that in his life as a method of making him more and more dependent upon God, realizing that God's grace was so great that it would help him even when he thinks things should be different. It was a way to perfect his strength, God's strength, through the weakness of Paul. And God does this with us often. In the name of Christ, it says next. This is an important uh, acknowledgement. It's not that you always have to end every prayer with the formula in Jesus' name. We do so because it calls our attention to the fact that our prayers are in Christ if we're praying as Christians. Many people pray all over the world right now. There are people praying. They're praying to a different God. And they're not praying through Christ. Does God hear the prayers of those? No. I mean, he hears them. He knows they're there, but he doesn't acknowledge them. And they're actually arrogant cries because they're people who think they can go to God without Christ. They may not know this, but that's the means by which they think they can talk to God. In the name of Christ is a simple acknowledgement that we can only have access to God through the merit of Christ. We can't have access to God because we've been really good this week or because we deserve it or whatever other reason. We only can go to God the Father because of God the Son on our behalf. That's the only reason. Through Christ, because of Christ, with Christ, according to the merit and rank of Christ, He gives us access to the throne. I picture that, that scene that scene when you have the queen going in to talk to the king, Queen Esther going to talk to the king, and she's scared to death that he will not accept her. Well, none of us go to God the Father like that. He accepts us because of the Son. So in the name of Christ is a way of saying that it's through Christ that we can pray these things. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it, John 16:23 says. Also in Hebrews 7, that great book that shows us the transference of the Old Covenant into the New, says, but he holds his priesthood permanently, that is Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So this constant intercession, the part of the Son, allows us to access the Father. I thought of it in this way, uh, that God the Father is on his throne and God the Son is seated at his right hand. And when we approach the throne, Jesus says, He's one of mine. So you, so you have to listen. Jesus can say that to the Father. They can have that relationship. And he does. And we pray. 
This is why Wesley wrote so wonderfully, Bold I approach the eternal throne through Christ, my own. With confession of our sins, this depicts the demeanor we are to have when we go to God. Without a sense of deserving something, we pray. With humility, with contrition, we pray. The psalmist wrote, I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, David says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach you. He's talking of this need for us to go to the Lord with confession. Be honest with a sense of deserving something, repenting. Daniel said, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Confession doesn't only mean that we confess our sins before the Lord, but we confess, we proclaim, we admit who he is as we confess the character of God before him as we go to him in prayer. The last phrase in the answer to the question says, in thankful acknowledgement of his mercy. So with confession of our sins and thankfulness. Thankfulness primarily for the mercy he shows us that we can come to his throne of grace without him striking us. We recognize the mercy and the grace that he has already bestowed. Even if he never answers what we ask for, he has already done enough in giving us mercy to hear us. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You notice that Paul does not say, and when God answers it, then you'll have peace. He says, as you bring these supplications, you get peace. Because God hears you and you know it, no matter what he decides to do with it. Question 99 gives us some direction. It's a rightful question to ask, well, well, how should we pray? Well, forecasting this, the question reads, what rule has God given for our direction in prayer? Well, first of all, the, word, the whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. So as we pray... We consider what the Word of God teaches us about God, His character, what He's done in the past. We refer to it. We even use it in our language. Not detached, but claiming the words for ourselves. But the special rule of direction, the question's answer goes on, is the form of prayer which Christ taught His disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. There are not very many times when the Lord Jesus gives us such distinct direction. But when He says, when you pray, pray like this, that's a good sign we should pray like that. And so on a regular basis, we pray this prayer, owning the words that Jesus has taught us every week anew, but we also consider the form of that prayer because it helps us in our own personal prayers, no matter how informal they are. Because look at how the prayer starts. It's in your bulletin listed, the, the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed. Our Father who art in heaven, this confession of, G, of God in heaven, sovereign over all, hallowed be thy name, that is, he's holy, that he is just, he's the great one, Thy kingdom come. In other words, your will and your will be done. Your will is what is best. I come to you, God, asking you, but we acknowledge from the beginning that it is your will we want because that's what's best. Not just for you and your glory, God, but for your people. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
let that which is decreed in heaven happen here. Give us this day our daily bread. Make us dependent upon you. Not worry about tomorrow's bread or next month's bread or next year's bread or retirement's bread, but today's bread. That's what I need. So I'm dependent upon you, God. Every day. Forgive us our debts. So we forgive our debtors. Be people who respond to the forgiveness of God by forgiving others. Lead us not into temptation. Please, Lord, steer us away from those things that will tempt us, that will cause us to sin. Deliver us from evil. Keep us safe from evil that threatens to harm. Yours is the kingdom. Do these things because of your glory, for your glory. Solo, Dea, glory. All the glory to you from beginning to end. And yours alone is the power to make this happen. And yours alone is the glory that should be seen and manifested. Prayer. It's an important part of the means of grace. I think everyone here prays. You probably have set times that you pray. But I hope you think of it differently now. Think of it as the means of grace that it is. You know, it's important for us to have the right perspective on the purpose for prayer. I think this is what is most misunderstood. Calvin said it well when he wrote that prayer is not so much for his sake as it is ours. He wills indeed, as is just, that due honor be paid him by acknowledgement that all which men desire or feel to be useful and pray to obtain is derived from him. But even the benefit of the homage which we thus pay him rebounds to ourselves. Yes, it is a matter of praying for God's will and his glory, but what happens when we do this is that the benefit rebounds back to us. Let's consider, and I have on your sheet several purposes of prayer that I've accumulated over time. I cannot take credit for all these. I just have long lost where I get them all from. I just have checked them over and over with Scripture and used them consistently in my own life and thinking and teaching and want to share them with you briefly today. There are several. I'll just mention them to you, and I'll give you some passages that connect to them if you want to write them down or just listen. Purpose of prayer number one. It's an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in our life. I think we've already touched on this. Psalm 139 accents this when the psalmist says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. By prayer we are saying that, God, you are sovereign over it all. You're the one I go to. Secondly, prayer is an acknowledgement of a believer's requirement to confess personal sin and to forgive others. By praying to God, we're saying we're going to Him with a certain boldness. And the boldness can only come from an understanding of our sin being forgiven in Christ. And this understanding of being forgiven should make us people who forgive others. We should not be so arrogant as to go to God without having forgiven others. This is an important warning to us. And prayer acknowledges this. 1 John 1 says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. This is part of why I believe Jesus puts in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. James 5 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working, meaning that God utilizes the righteousness of his people, a gift that he gives, no doubt, in bringing about his own will. He ordains this. In other words, God ordains prayers 
to accomplish his ends. He doesn't wait for prayers to decide what to do. He decides what to do and utilizes prayers to make that happen. Luke 11, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Another version of the same prayer. Thirdly, we notice that prayer is an acknowledgement of a believer's desperate need for God. It's a great picture of our desperation, and desperation is good when it comes to recognizing how much we need God. Luke 22:44. and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The Lord Jesus in the garden shows this desperation before the Father. Fourth, prayer is a response of a true believer. I struggle when I write true believer because I don't want to set up some higher elite of those who are higher ranking Christians than those who are not. I just simply mean someone who truly trusts in Christ. They truly understand their sin and desperation before God and they will pray. They'll just they'll cry out to God. And I don't mean in the most formal sense of the Book of Common worship. I mean they'll just lay it out before the Lord. Some of the most powerful prayers I've ever heard and probably ever uttered myself have been in desperation and with a total lack of King James English. Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Similarly, Paul says in Ephesians 6, Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's, it's the response of a true believer, one who has been born again. Fifth purpose of prayer. It represents, really, an indescribable intimacy with the creator of the universe. We can talk to God anywhere. We don't have to go to the temple. We don't have to assume a certain position. We don't have to use particular magical words. We can talk to God anywhere, any place. Psalm 130, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is great forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in the word, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities represents an intimacy with God that it's like going to your dad sixthly you'll note that prayer produces God sanctioned results when we pray God sanctioned results occur now what I mean by this is that God's will is done and we are in joyful conformity to it Many examples of this in Scripture, for sure. I love in Genesis 24. O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. The daughters of the men of the city are coming to draw. Let the young woman whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. I'm not saying that's the way everybody ought to find a spouse. But recognize the sense in which the servant speaks 
asking God, please grant me success today. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Asking for God's will to be done. In John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, it's thrown away like a branch and withers. Branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Recognize what that says in its context. As you abide in Christ, you will ask for the things that are according to his will. Acts 12. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. Now recognize, there's two different levels you'll read Scripture at. There's the the surface level that we all live at, and this is where it is. Here it is. Peter's in jail. One of the apostles, uh, at least humanly speaking, needed to do the work of planting the church. The church prays, and he's released. We understand that the decrees of God must have ordained this thing to happen, and it happened, and it empowered the church. It was God's will that it would be done. But we recognize those surface-level events that happen, and we pray And we pray and we pray, all the while recognizing it must be according to his will. And whatever his will is, it will be empowering to the church and to us personally. It produces God-sanctioned results when we pray. Seventh, finally, prayer represents an indescribable, indescribable privilege to communicate with the Father, much like this intimacy we can have. Matthew 6, 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I may have shared this with you before, but it's still something that sticks out from my childhood. We all have different notions and things we think of when we're growing up and we're kids. and we, they're, they're just things that are unfathomable to us. And no adult seems to be able to answer for us. And I was so intrigued with space exploration. But I was scared about it because I thought to myself, what would happen, though, if you were up in in the space shuttle, because that was my era in the early 80s when it first launched. I remember going into a huge auditorium to watch the first space shuttle take off. Most of us don't even know when it goes up and goes down anymore. But then it was huge. And the idea of a spacewalk, and in the space shuttle, unlike the Apollo missions, the, the, the shuttle would kind of orbit the Earth, and then you'd see this tether in this astronaut out there with the mirror face. And I thought, man, that's really cool. But on the other hand, something really freaked me out about it. What if that tether broke? And you started hurtling off into space. Now I know you would have, it wouldn't happen that way. You'd fall into earth and burn up. But what if you would have hurtled off, which would have been better than hurling off forever? Would you starve to death? Would you run out of, would God hear you out there as you're hurtling past the planets, which I now know would take too long to ever get to? But at that time as a child, I thought maybe there God would not hear you. I mean, you're not with anybody else. You're totally alone out there. I mean, totally alone. No human people, no human beings. Could God hear you? Well, your father, who sees in secret, will reward you, it says. Will hear you. God is everywhere in this universe he created, even there. Certainly, you lying on your bed with a terrible headache crying out to God about something. He hears you. He's there. I'd like to conclude 
by reminding you of a verse from 1 Thessalonians 5. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There are not very many things I can say with absolute certainty to you that this is the will of God for you. But here I can say that you praying regularly to your Father is the will of God for you. And if you're not doing it, that's probably a good reason why you're not making good progress up the mountain. It could be one of the other means aren't working well either. But this oxygen connection I've tried to make with prayer is because when you use oxygen in Everest, it's an option. There are people who get to the top without using it. There have been many people who have tried to use it, not use it, and they have gotten terribly sick. Many have died, usually on the descent. They get to the top, but they can't make it back down without the oxygen. You have only one-third of the oxygen uh, available to you when you're on the top of that mountain at 29,000 feet. You need extra oxygen. It gives you the ability to stay warmer. gives you the ability to think straighter. It gives you a certain level of energy that you might not even recognize unless you didn't have it. In fact, some people say, well, I don't think I needed it, but they had it on the whole time. How do they know? Well, we should think that way about prayer. Yes, it's possible to fudge through life barely praying. It's possible. It's terribly unwise, and many perish that way. Many fall prey to the, many, the, the pitfalls that there are. But as we pray, we gain that energy we need to make it to the top. Prayer is something we should do without ceasing. Write your prayers out if that's what you'd like to do. Use prayer books if you enjoy that. Pray with your spouse regularly. I tell married couples, no married couple should ever go to bed before praying at least once with their spouse during the day. It it embarrasses you at this point in your marriage. My simple pastoral advice would be, you've got to get over that. You've got to pray with your husband or your wife every day. And I'll tell you what, if you're having a a spat, if that may happen to somebody. If you're having a spat, it's very difficult when you have a set time to pray. And I don't mean like a long 30-minute prayer. I mean 30 seconds maybe, but you touch base by praying before you go to sleep or whenever it has been the day. It's very difficult when you have some offense against each other to go to the Lord when you know that you have not made that right. So among other benefits, it will help you to make sure things are right with your spouse. Pray out loud sometimes. Pray in your heart, your head, others. Talk to God throughout the day. Set times for prayer. David did this. Daniel did this. Jesus did this. Call it whatever you want. Devotions, quiet time, meeting with God, worship. But prioritize times with the Lord for prayer and Bible reading. And don't make it too long to start or you won't keep with it. Regular times are important. But at the same time, look for spontaneous times to pray. We used to make fun of my dad because we'd look out in the garden and he'd be talking to himself. What is dad talking about? And I don't know if he's talking to the plants or he says, what he's doing? But I thought to myself, that's exactly the picture of how the Christian ought to be with God. Talking to God all the time. You ever been with someone who just will break out in a prayer or just talk to God? I think that's tremendous. Now, it may not be your style, but don't knock the fact that that person is recognizing God's presence always with them. And they can talk to God anytime and so can you, however you do it. Spontaneous times to pray. Nehemiah did this. The king said to me, what do you request? The king was asking him something and he's trying to get some, some leverage so that he can build. And Nehemiah's response before he answered to him, it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, 
If your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask you to send me into Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah's immediate response to the face of the king was, I prayed to God. Well, clearly it wasn't a long prayer because he talked to the king right away. So spontaneously, whenever you have an opportunity, pray. Finally, do not worry about the form or the length of your prayers. Simply pray. Augustine is the one who said so well. It was your Lord who put an end to long-windedness so that you would not pray as if you wanted to teach God by your many words. Piety, not verbosity, is in order when you pray since he already knows your needs. So the complexion of our lives should be marked by prayer, no doubt. He gives us this access to himself as a means of grace. The Christian life is like climbing Everest. The extreme altitude and cold make it a monumental task. You cannot accomplish this task without the right tools. And we're now equipped to climb in 2010 and beyond. We have our boots on, the Word of God. We're suited with the identity of God's people by baptism and the security it brings, the recognition it brings to whom we are dependent upon. We're supplied a tool to climb and assist in the progress regularly of the Lord's Supper. We have our oxygen, a direct power line to God, prayer. It is my prayer, will be my prayer every day of this year that God would make us a church that dwells on these things, focuses on these things, gains our progress by these things. Let's pray. Father, we certainly agree with your word. We are so thankful for your word where it reminds us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But the Lord Jesus, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. Lord, in that light, let us with confidence draw near to your throne that we may receive mercy, that we may find grace and help in time of need. Lord God, we have considered again those simple tools that you have displayed for us in your word. I pray that you would make us a people who avail ourselves of them so that we may grow, that we may ascend that proverbial mountain, Lord, by your grace and your power. In Jesus' name. Amen.